Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are in control of everything that's happening in this world and we can trust, give us wisdom on how to navigate all the cultural issues that we face, especially here in the state of California, and help us uh, to be wise, to be gentle with outsiders, uh, sharing the hope of the gospel. So we're desperate for your spirit and uh, we trust that you will empower us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a few handouts here we can pass back. Thank you all for showing up. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a pastor and author, and uh, he said that the early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as it feared false teaching. So the early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as it feared false teaching. So the driving heartbeat of the early church was preserving orthodox doctrine. The biggest fear that the church had, the biggest threat was not evil governments, kind of what we were talking about before the class started. It was not persecution. Persecution was not the biggest fear of the early church. The biggest threat and the biggest fear was actually false teaching. Now, think about this. How many times have you heard uh, a Christian in America rightly share their fears about persecution, maybe fears of being martyred, fears of where the country is headed? How many times have you heard Christians talking about where our country is headed and how Christians have been unfairly targeted. I mean, you get on social media, you see this stuff on Facebook, there's emails that are forwarded. So we experience that all the time, right? We were having conversations before about just the changes in our culture, the changes in the climate of our country now. Now think about this. How many times have you heard a Christian in America share their fears about the spread of false teaching? About false teaching creeping into churches. How many times have you heard Christians talk about and be concerned about false teaching spreading through the churches as much as we are what's happening in our culture and how we're being treated as Christians? So it's something to think about in our culture. The early church did not fear martyrdom nearly as much as they feared false teaching. And so we pray that that would be true of God's church in the West, here in America today, and we pray that it would be true of us here at Grace. And that's one reason why we're doing this class is because we want to do our part to help preserve sound doctrine. We want to look back upon our brothers and sisters in Christ who have lived before us, gone before us in church history, and we want to learn from them. So this class is about not only learning, but it's also about changing. Remember, all the people that have gone before us are dead. They can't change, okay? So there's no, there's no sense kicking them, throwing them under the bus. We can examine what they believed, and what they held to, and what they did, and what they said, but they can't change. We can. And so we want to examine them and examine their lives and their ministries and their teachings and what the early church struggled with and what church throughout church history Christians struggled with, but they can't change. We can change, and that's what we want to do. So yes, persecution was happening in the early church, but... More than they feared martyrdom, they feared false teaching. People having the wrong ideas about God. So from the time of Jesus to the end of the first century and moving into the second century, Christians were being persecuted. So it sounds like what Paul said in Acts 14 verse 22 was true. He, it was said of Paul that he went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul was letting them know you're going to suffer. Okay? Be strengthened. You're going to suffer. All right. Let's look quickly at a little timeline here through uh, the time of Jesus all the way to uh, the beginning of the second century. So this is maybe 90. AD over here. And we've got the time of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry in 33, 30 to 33 AD. So this is Jesus. 
Then we have in the middle here, in the 50s to uh, the, the mid-60s maybe, we have Paul's letters being written uh, in the mid-60s. We, we have, and these, these dates are, you know, movable. We have Hebrews, we have James being written, First and Second John, First and Second Peter. The general, what are called the general epistles are, are written during this time. Paul's, this is, I need to give you a date there. This is 50 to 60s AD here. And then all the way over here in the early uh, 90s, uh, scholars debate, I believe that the book of Revelation was written in the 90s. Again, scholars debate on this. These dates are movable. Um, the Gospels are probably written, I would say, mid-60s um, up into very early 90s. We have the Gospels being written. Now, the, since the time of Jesus, there were these stories being told of Jesus, true stories. The, it's what's called the oral tradition. These are stories that are passed down. And so the gospel, these oral stories are being recorded and people are telling stories about Jesus. But it's sometime in maybe the mid-60s that the gospels are written maybe up into the 90s. Sometime in that region there we have the gospels are actually written down. There were actually several uh, scholars believe that there were several other possible gospels that were written before the gospels that we have but they weren't included in scripture so scholars will debate you know who was mark relying upon mark was discipled by peter but what source what were his sources that he was using to collect all these stories of jesus so this is kind of a big broad shot of the first, from the time of jesus to the end of the first century and then we have a moment let me see if i haven't left anything off we have a very significant mo moment happening here in 70 A.D. Anybody know what happened in 70 <clears throat> A.D.? Rome gets sacked. Destruction yeah. of the yeah. Jerusalem gets leveled. The temple destroyed. Jerusalem is leveled the streets. You can read about this uh, in the Jewish historian Josephus. You can Google it. Josephus, Josephus, destruction of Jerusalem. You can read what actually happened. It's like a news account of what happened. It was the emperor Titus began marching in towards Jerusalem. There were several years of wars leading up to this, and he absolutely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. I think that what Jesus describes in Mark chapter 13 about look out for the abomination of desolation, he's telling the disciples, watch out. When you see Titus marching towards Jerusalem, get out of Dodge. Get out of the city. Pray that you're not pregnant in those days. Woe to the nursing mothers. Because when Titus comes in and starts to siege the city, it was awful. And so Josephus records, and if you're interested, you can go back to my sermon in Mark 13 where I explained how I think Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that over 1.1 million people died when Titus pummeled the city. The city was set on fire. There was so much bloodshed that the blood flowing through the streets was actually putting out the fires. There were piles of dead bodies. The stench was overwhelming. There was a famine. People were starving. Parents sold their children for food. Some parents ate their children. There's a story of one lady who ate half of her child and saved part of it. And the stench of the body, the neighbors noticed the smell and came barging in. It's like, you're hiding. You're holding something out. Share. We want to eat. People were eating out of sewers. They were eating pigeon dung. They were eating straps and pieces of leather. They were eating hay. Anything to fill their belly and Josephus tells us that over 500 people were crucified by the Romans every single day. I mean, it was awful. So just Google it. Josephus, destruction of Jerusalem. It's awful what happened. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about in Mark 13. He was telling the disciples, if you're in Jerusalem and you see Titus coming, you see the abomination that causes desolation, get the heck out of Dodge. Now, prior to this moment here in 70 A.D., where Jerusalem is absolutely destroyed. Prior to this, in 
54 uh, AD, Nero, the Roman uh, emperor Nero, comes to power. Okay, he uh, took the throne in 54 AD, and at first Nero was a pretty reasonable guy. He was a swell guy. I mean, people liked him, but eventually he became so impressed with himself, so full of himself, his ego got so big that he gathered this group of yes men around him, and instead of serving and leading the people, Nero was consumed with himself, consumed with his visions of grandeur, coupled with his lust, and coupled with his desire to control We've never had politicians like that before, have we? Consumed with himself, visions of grandeur, coupled with lust and the desire for power and control. We have never, ever had politicians like that, have we? But soon people uh, became irritated with Nero and rumors began to spread that he had gone mad. He lost his mind, that he was crazy. And so on the night of June 18th in 64 AD, the city of Rome caught fire. And many people believe that Nero himself had set the fires so that he could rebuild the city according to his own fancy. So he could get his own interior and exterior decorators and architects and rebuild it the way he wanted to build it. And so rumors spread that even Nero even danced on the rooftop and played his fiddle as Rome was burning. And so fearing that he would be blamed for the fire, Nero had to accuse someone. And so he pointed his finger at this new sect this new religion called Christianity. And so Nero blamed the fires of, Rome's, of Rome on Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us, you can read about this. This is what the Roman historian Tacitus tells us about what happened. He says, in spite of every human effort of the emperor's generosity and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion, nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, rumor, Nero blamed the Christians, who were hated for their abominations, and punished them with refined cruelty. Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stopped for a moment, this evil superstition reappeared, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together. Thus, first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of humankind. So these words from the Roman historian Tacitus give us a glimpse into how the world viewed Christians at this time during the reign of Nero. Unbelievers viewed Christian as people who had hatred for human humankind. We've never had anything like that in our culture before, have we? We've never been accused in our day and age, have we, as people who hate other people because we won't let them be who they identify as or live any way that they want to. So, so this is nothing new, okay? Christians have always been persecuted prior to Jesus. I would say you go back to Genesis 3 and from Adam and Eve on, Christians have always been persecuted and hated by the world. But Tacitus continues. Listen to how he describes what Nero was doing to Christians during this time. Tacitus says, before killing the Christians... Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate it. Nero opened his garden for gardens for these shows. And in the circus, he himself became a spectacle. For he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer. Or he rode around in his chariot. All of this aroused the mercy of the people even against these culprits who deserved an exemplary punishment. For it's clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of the one person. And so the Roman historian Tacitus, while not fond of Christians, he recognized that the persecution that Christians were experiencing, the suffering, the punishment, was not for anything that they had done, only because Nero was a sicko 
And he enjoyed this. And so it's difficult to know the full extent of uh, Nero's persecution of the church in this time. We have what Tacitus says. It's quite possible that Paul and Peter were martyred under his reign. It's been passed down. You've probably heard it's been passed down through the years that Peter was crucified upside down. And Paul was martyred at the site that is now occupied by the monastery of the three fountains in Rome. They get their name because ancient tradition tells us when Paul was decapitated, when they chopped off his head, his head kind of plopped and and rolled down the hill. And then the three little places that it plopped down the hill, the three points where it touched the ground, at those points, these three fountains uh, gushed up water. That's the tradition. So, again, lots of traditions, lots of stories. Uh, We have to take them with a grain of salt. The bottom line is that Christians were being persecuted. We know that much. And then after Nero killed himself in AD 68, things settled down until the end of the first century when the Roman emperor Domitian came to reign and persecution heated up again and the apostle John was exiled on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. So persecution has been the ongoing story of the church. I seem to remember Jesus saying something along the lines of, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, John 21, 17. So that's kind of a quick snapshot of the early church from the time of Jesus to the end of the first century. And so now we want to hop in a time machine and go back and find ourselves now here at the end of the first century. Century. We're on the heels of the apostles now. It's about 96, 97, 98, 99 AD, give or take a few years. And we discover that there are these writings that have been left to us. They're not writings left by the apostles, the 12 apostles. They're not writings left to us by the 12 disciples. This isn't uh, uh, Peter, James, or John. This isn't Paul. These are writings that are left to us. Not by them, because those guys are now dead. Well, John may be alive there, but the rest of them are dead. Paul is gone. Paul has had his head cut off a long time ago. Peter is long gone. He was crucified upside down a long time ago. So all of the apostles are dead, just like the Jedi Knights at the end of Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, if you remember watching that. Execute order number 66. Kill all of the Jedi Knights. But unlike the Jedi Knights, the apostles, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples appointed people to take their place. Because they knew they were going to be dead soon. So we have to pass off leadership to someone. And this second generation of apostolic Jedi Knights, if you will, they have come to be known as the Apostolic Fathers. And that's who we're going to look at tonight. And next week. These are the apostolic fathers. The name that has been given to them. Many of them were bishops in the church. And so here's how it looked for the bishop in the first and second century. Imagine a time when you did not have a copy of God's word. That's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Only the bishops at this point had access to the scriptures. There was no printing press. Most Most churches did not even have copies of the scriptures. Maybe pieces and little books here and there, but certainly not like the full Bible like we have today. People did not have their personal study Bibles to color in and highlight so they could stuff four months of church bulletins inside of them. You know who you are. And during this time, heretics were on the rise. The thing the church feared the most, false teaching, was on the rise. And we're going to look at this more when we get to a man named Ignatius next week. But one of the heresies that was on the rise was a heresy known as docetism. And docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or appear to be. So 
the heresy of docetism taught that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be human when he was on the earth. When people interacted with Jesus, he seemed like a human being. He appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't really a human being like us. He didn't have a, really have a body. He didn't have hair. He didn't have big toes. He just seemed that way. He seemed human according to our eyes. And so during this time at the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, well into it, docetism was appearing, no pun intended, docetism was appearing in Christian bookstores. And there were songs that churches were singing that were written by the heretic Chris Tomlout, not Chris Tomlin, that had courses that said things like, Jesus only appeared to be here. He had no body. He shed no tears. He was like a ghost on Scooby-Doo. You could not hug him. You'd go right through. And so there are heresies that challenged uh, the early church, like docetism and like the Judaizers that we looked at several weeks ago, who insisted that in order to be saved, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses. And there are other heresies floating around, like Gnosticism that we'll look at in a few weeks or so. And so as Christian radio, if you will, was blaring out these songs and bookstores were stocking their shelves with these heresies, with these, these false teachings by these false teachers, the question became, how do I know? In the midst of all of these heresies, how do I know what truth is? I don't have my own personal ESV study Bible. How do I know in the midst of these heresies that I'm hearing on the radio and I'm seeing in the bookstores, how do I know what truth is? Who can be trusted with the apostolic message? Remember, no one has a copy of their own Bible. So how do they discern truth from error? How do they discern orthodoxy from heresy? And that's where the bishops come into play. At the end of the first century and into the second century, the measure of truth was the bishop, the men who were appointed by the twelve apostles who were appointed by Jesus. See, that's the connection. These, the apostles ordained these men, these bishops, as the ones who could be trusted with the truth. That was the role of the bishop in the early church. And then he then communicated with local pastors who then declared the truth on to their congregations. And so it looked like this. You had Jesus who then appointed the 12 apostles. And then these guys appointed bishops to take their place. And then these guys passed down that information to local pastors in local churches. And if you read through some of the reading here, there's a little leeway with the words like bishop and presbyter at this time. Um, but there's, it's always in the plural when you read. It's always in the plural when you read. There was, there was a plurality of leadership. There wasn't just one man in charge of everything. There was this plurality of leadership. These, these bishops were appointed, working together. They are then communicating with local pastors. And so... Back then, if you have someone coming to your church and they have a letter of recommendation, maybe they're applying for the new associate pastor of family ministries in your church at First Baptist Church of Corinth or First Presbyterian Church of Corinth. Who are you going to trust? You're going to trust the guy who comes with a letter of recommendation from John Doe down in Podunkville? Or are you going to trust the guy with a letter of recommendation from R.C. Sproul? I mean, which is more assuring? You're going to go with the guy who has the letter of recommendation from R.C. Sproul, right? That was the role of the bishop. He was the guardian of apostolic truth. And so you go with the guy who was appointed by Peter, who was appointed by Jesus. And so there's this line of trustworthiness. The bishop was the one who could be trusted. So if someone has worked with Ray Ortland, one of my heroes, and he sends a letter of recommendation to me, I'm looking to hire that guy. It's about this line of trustworthiness. This is why the bishop in each city rises to such an important position in the first and second centuries. 
And so the apostolic fathers were bishops are dated between uh, about A.D. 90 to A.D. uh, 174, again, give or take on these years. And the main writings of the Apostolic Fathers, if you're interested in reading them, the main ones, you can, you can Google them, you can do the Loeb Classical Library series. You can, you can read these, and they're fascinating to read. Uh, the main writings, first we have First uh, Clement. He is in 96, 98 AD. We're going to look at him in a minute. So we have First Clement. Then we have the letters of Ignatius. We're going to look at Ignatius next week. He is 110, yeah, AD 110. And then we've got the Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas is AD 130. Number four on the list is the Epistle of Barnabas. can't read my writing, I'm sorry. That's your fault. <laughs> He's about 150 AD. And then lastly, we have the martyrdom of Polycarp. And we'll look at all of these next week. Look at number one. Tonight, martyrdom of Polycarp is about 155. So, tonight we're just going to focus on number one on first Clement. And so the apostolic fathers are the ones who follow on the heels of the apostles. They have left writings to us that are not scripture. Okay, so at this point, the New Testament canon, as we know it, is closed. Though the New Testament hasn't officially been collected yet, they are, they are being collected. We, we see from Peter, Peter says, hey, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, and he says, like other scriptures. So even when Peter was writing, maybe in the mid-60s, they've already recognized, hey, some of Paul's writings should be elevated above everything else that's being circulated. So Paul's writings early on, some of them are being equated with scripture. So the writings of the apostolic fathers are not held in as high regard as the Old Testament or as Paul's letters or as Peter's. They're not held as high as the authoritative word of God, but they are still held in high regard by churches in this time. They're just not equated with Scripture. So the New Testament canon is closed. There are no new letters being written that are recognized as Scripture, but we do have people writing letters, and that's what the apostolic fathers are doing. So the twelve apostles are dead. Their disciples write some letters to some churches because these churches had some problems Like all churches have problems because all churches are full of what? Sinners. So what did you expect of any church in the first century or the second century? What did you expect? The churches in Paul's writings had problems. Do you think that the next generation of believers would not have any problems? I mean, what did you expect? What do you expect when you go to Chick-fil-A? You expect good food, right? And you expect to hear, you expect great customer service, and you expect to hear someone say what? My pleasure, right? So what did you expect of churches at the end of the first century, in the beginning of the second century? What do you expect them to be like? They're full of sinners. What do you expect them to be like? They had problems. And so the apostolic fathers are writing to these churches to address these problems. They had the scriptures, But let me ask you, does having the scriptures keep Christians from fighting with each other? Does having the scriptures keep Christians and churches from fighting over little things, big things? Husbands and wives, you have the Bible in your home and on your iPhone. Does it keep you from fighting with each other? Does having a Bible keep husbands and wives from fighting over which way the toilet paper roll is supposed to go? No. See, even though we have the scriptures, even though we have the Bible, we have the authoritative word of God, and it is sufficient, we also need reminders, don't we? We need exhortations. We need help from outside. And that's exactly what the apostolic fathers are doing. 
They wrote letters to these churches in these cities to help them deal with their problems. And as you read the Apostolic Fathers, what's encouraging is that you find their letters are full of Scripture. Full of Scripture. There are six issues that the Apostolic Fathers dealt with in their writings. And these six issues... To quote Gomer Pyle, if you remember him, surprise, surprise, surprise. There are six issues that we still deal with in our churches. Six issues that churches still deal with today. And so not much has changed in over 2,000 years of church history. The same human hearts still produce the same issue in every church there is. And you might have to wait for it. It may not be your current struggle as a church, but it probably will one day. All churches deal with these six issues because churches are full of what? Sinners. And so the first thing that the writings of the Apostolic Fathers address time and time again is the issue of unity. They are dealing with the issue of unity. The problem of disunity within the church community. They're trying to keep the pressure down on individuality. They're trying to keep the pressure down on everybody having this individual this individual look and understanding of their Christian faith that it's just me and Jesus. They're trying to keep the pressure down on individuality because individuality can destroy the church community. Such as pride which is what they're writing and dealing with. Rebellion against authority, (laughs) submission to leaders, lust for power. All of these things will destroy a church community. And so the question becomes, how do you keep the church body together and unified around the essentials of the faith, unified around mutual love, mutual submission, mutual edification? How do you make disciples that are not focused on themselves, that aren't focused on individuality and instead have the church community's interest at heart. I mean, isn't this what churches struggle with? Individuality has trumped the corporate aspect of church life. And so it becomes about my preferences and my wants and my wishes. Oh, let me ask you, give you time to Chime in. Where do we see individuality rearing its ugly head in churches today? What might be something where somebody's like, I want to be heard about this issue? Well, you said something this morning which triggered me. You said we should dance and have that freedom to be joyful and dance. And I thought, whoa, I went to visit my son's church and they actually had a section for just, just for dancing. And I thought, is that where we're going? <laughs> I mean, so we don't they, have enough room, right? Well, their church is pretty small. They made room for that so that they, yeah. don't, so they could have unity. Yeah. So how far do you go to have unity? Well, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And since you're married to and sitting next to an elder, that's something we'll probably have to talk about. <laughs> right? Yeah, Tuesday we're going to talk about Yeah, that. Tuesday at our next elder meeting, <laughs> we're going to talk about Laura's desire to have dancing in the sanctuary. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it, you need wisdom, right? We need wisdom, and it takes mutual love and submission and understanding. And for someone who wants to dance, maybe they have to say, you know what? For the greater good of the body, I'm not going to dance. And so there's, we need wisdom in how we do this, you know on how we navigate these waters because clearly everybody can't get their way, right? Yeah. Tongues is another one. Uh, my tongues. son is dealing with some friends at a church down in Toro where they yeah. been discussing it. And what would Paul say about at least the local assembly of tongues? He's like, it's, it's better if you just, just do it quietly to yourself, right? And if you're going to do it out loud, there's there's still parameters that help, yeah. right? Got to have three people at the most, yeah. and you got to have an interpreter. Yeah, my son said I've never heard it where they've had an interpreter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do they do? Okay. Those verses are usually conveniently overlooked, and yet Paul is trying to say, well, just his understanding of here's how you keep the unity. You have three people do it, and you have to have an interpreter if you're going to have this in your. Worship assembly. So they're, he's shooting for the unity of the church there, I think. Anything else? Any other ways? I'm not thinking of ways, but I'm thinking of the scripture of, 
Yep. Eating meat offends your brother, don't eat it in front of him. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there are some things I might agree with or disagree with, but I don't have to necessarily say it or act on some of my own feelings either. I could just listen sometimes. Yeah. And, um, Absolutely. Great passage. Christ. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I have the freedom to do this, but for the sake of my brother, yes, I'm not going to. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that also is a wider scope that it presents a unity of, of believers to those who don't know Christ. They see yeah. you know, in the first, you know, how they love one another. Yeah. Because he's like, well, I can do that, but for him, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And in our culture, where everybody's fighting. Yeah. To come in for an unbeliever to come into church and say, wow, you guys all get along? And they might find out that guy's a Republican, that guy's a Democrat, that guy's an Independent, that guy's just weird. He has really weird <laughs> beliefs. And you guys all get along and love each other? What a testimony. You know, Jesus, is, he talked about this. Okay? The one I thought everybody would answer is music style. I, mean, I, I lobbed you a little softball. I wanted somebody to knock that one out of the park. <laughs> music style, right? We all want our own music style, right? I mean... I want my own music style. I love our music here. I love our musicians. I have my own preference. You wouldn't want my preference, probably. <laughs> you know, we all want to have our own. So we've got to work together. How are we going to come up with something that everybody can say, you know what? I'm going to worship and I'm not going to fight over this. Uh, I put down preaching or your views of youth ministry. There's, there's many other things where individuality can kind of rear uh, its ugly head in churches. And so the question for us now, and the same question that the apostolic fathers were dealing with, is how do you make disciples who aren't focused on themselves, that aren't focused on individuality, and instead they have the church community's interest at heart, and that's exactly what the apostolic fathers are addressing. Remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 21? He said, Father, I pray that they they may be one as we are one. And so the struggle at the end of the first century into the second century for the apostolic fathers was to see this prayer of Jesus come to fulfillment. It was a struggle to keep individuality down in churches. And nothing has changed since the first century. Disciples in the first century struggled with it the same as we do. Marianne? Yes, being of one mind and one accord. And that's Christ at the center. You, you see it all in Paul's letters a lot, right? Striving for the unity of the faith, coming together. So the, in Paul's day, they struggled with this. At the end of the first century, at the beginning of the second century, into the second century, they're still struggling with this, and nothing has changed for us either. We all struggle with self-centeredness, about putting our needs above the church community's needs. And self-centeredness, though, is what splits churches, doesn't it? Churches split all the time, right? But church splits are pagan. Churches will split over anything, right? Now, if a church split over, you know, this, this part of the church says they don't believe that Jesus is God, that's a church split. They're going to say, unfortunately, we're, we're going to have to go over here because you don't believe Jesus is God. And that's kind of a core doctrine that we hold to. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about churches splitting over the color of the carpet or the music or the preaching or, or whether the pastor should have at least some color in his wardrobe. <laughs> it's absolutely remarkable what churches will split over. Churches should never, I think churches should never split over music, contemporary or traditional. I think that's of the devil. I think that's pagan. Church splits are pagan. If it's, if it's not a core doctrine that we're talking about. And so that's what the apostolic fathers are addressing. The main issue for the apostolic fathers is how do we keep unity alive in the church? How do we see this prayer of Jesus in John 17 answered and enjoyed in the local church? So unity is number one. The second issue that the apostolic fathers addressed was the issue uh, of what is called Christology. Our, our understanding of Jesus and who he is. How do we understand the person of Christ? Particularly, how are we to understand his humanity? We're going to see that in the coming weeks. The church is wrestling with the humanity of Jesus. Was he really a human being just like us? Uh, 
Did he get heartburn from eating too much tri-tip? Was he a human being or did he just appear to be human? Did he just seem human? What was he really? And so the question of his person and nature are paramount in the writings of the apostolic fathers. Third issue the apostolic fathers address was Judaism. They're still going to be dealing with the Judaizers. As the questions become like, are Christians Jews? Do Christians have to obey the Mosaic law? What about circumcision? Do we have to be circumcised? Okay, think about keeping the unity of the faith and, and focusing on the church community and not on the individual. What did Paul ask Timothy to do as they were going into a Jewish region to preach the gospel? He asked them to be circumcised. So to make sure they didn't hinder any ministry, Paul said, Timothy, you've got to be circumcised. Okay, so what about circumcision? Do Christians... Who are Gentiles have to be circumcised because Paul circumcised Timothy in order to go and reach these people? Do we have to celebrate the Feast of Israel? What is the relationship between Jews and Christians? Between Judaism and Christianity? What is the relationship between the church and Israel? And so it shouldn't surprise you that the Judaizers are still alive and well. And Ignatius will address them. We'll look at that next week. They're still on the scene, and they're still causing drama and going around to churches and say, if you really want to be a Christian, if you're a male, you have to be circumcised and you have to adhere to the Mosaic Law. So these are the questions that the second century church was still trying to sort out some 70 years later after Jesus. Fourth issue of the Apostolic Fathers addresses the interpretation of the Old Testament. How do you interpret the Old Testament. What in the world do you do with the Old Testament? What does Jerusalem have to do with Rome? What about Jerusalem? It was destroyed. What was happening there? What about the 40 years that Israel spent in the desert? What, is, what does that have to do with me as a Christian now living in Rome? What about all these stories in the Old Testament? What about the temple? For many people living in Corinth and Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, the only temples that they know are pagan temples. So what's all this talk about the temple in the Old Testament? What about all these sacrifices that the Old Testament is talking about? The only sacrifices that many of them knew were the sacrifices that were happening at pagan temples. And so how do you preach the Old Testament as a Christian? How do you read the Old Testament as a Christian? They would say, I'm a Christian for heaven's sake. I'm a follower of Christ. So what is the Old Testament's relevance to me? How do you interpret the Old Testament? These are the questions that the Apostolic Fathers addressed. The fifth issue that the Apostolic Fathers addressed was the question of purity. How does a Christian live? What distinguishes a Christian from a pagan? What is the test of spirituality? How does a Christian distinguish himself from the pagan world in which he lives? How do the disciples be in the world, but not of the world? And the sixth issue that the Apostolic Fathers addressed was this. How in the world do you do church? What does a worship service look like? Is there a call to worship like we have? Is there a prayer of confession and celebration like we have? What does a worship service look like? What kind of leadership is there in the church? How and who do you baptize? How do you baptize someone? Do you sprinkle? Do you immerse them? Who do you baptize? Infants of believers or someone who has made a public profession of faith and turned away from sin and following Jesus? And what about the Lord's Supper? What do we do with that? They, they all use wine. We didn't get grape juice until a man named Welch came. Welch's <laughs> many years later. So they weren't even having the wine or, or grape juice issue. But what about the Lord's Supper? Who can take the Lord's Supper? How in the world do you do church? These are the six issues and the six questions that this group of writers known as the Apostolic Fathers will spill a bunch of ink on. And so the one that we're going to look at 
tonight, the first of the Apostolic Fathers, is a writing that comes to us from around 96, 98 A.D. Uh, we're still in the first century, I know. I promised you last time we met that we would get out of the first century, didn't I, and into the second <laughs> century. I lied to you. Okay, we're just going to kind of barely stick our toe. You can, we're in 98 A.D. You can stick your toe over and get into the second century if you want to, if that's a hang-up for you. Okay, I promised you we would get out, but we're not quite out. It's 96... 97, 98 A.D., and we have what is known as First Clement, written by Clement, who was the bishop of Rome. Remember the bishops? They were handpicked by the disciples who were handpicked by Jesus. And so Clement writes a letter to the city of Corinth, to the church in Corinth, the same church that Paul pastored for a season. Exact same church. This is the same church that Paul planted. You can read about in the book of Acts. And things haven't improved much since the days of Paul. And Clement writes this letter to the Corinthian church. You want to get guess why? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Does anybody know why Clement is writing to this church? He's writing because some young interns, some young seminary students, if you will, some young people. The Greek word for them is millennial, I think. <laughs> Just kidding. No millennials here. Some young people have risen up in the church and they've gathered a group of people around them and they've spread these rumors and they've caused this uprising against the mature leaders, against the elders and the pastors and it has caused a church split. And so the pride and the arrogance of the young has split the church right down the middle. And so Clement, as the bishop of Rome, who has oversight of these churches and has oversight, even though there's a local pastor there, he has oversight of these churches. Clement writes this letter to the church pleading with these young bucks, pleading with them to exhibit the humility of Christ to exhibit the humility of Jesus and to display the Christian virtues of humility and submission and to reunify the church. Clement is writing and he is highlighting the virtue of humility that should be characteristic of all Christians and the virtue of submission to one another which should be characteristic of all Christians. Clement wants them to work with one another in harmony and to display respect for their church leaders rather than pride and arrogance. And here's what's remarkable about Clement. And I encourage you, uh, you can probably Google it and find him. You can read him, what he's writing. This is what's so remarkable. This is what I love about Clement. This is, he's one of these guys who are like, I want to meet that person in heaven. I want to meet Clement in heaven. He teaches the humility of Christ from the Old Testament. He never cites a New Testament passage in full. There are hints that, Paul, that Clement may have known the writings of Paul and John, but he cites passage after passage after passage of the Old Testament to address the problems of pride in the church at Corinth. Huge chunks of the Old Testament. He spills so much ink on the Christian virtue of humility and the humility of Jesus, and he does it from the Old Testament. Clement is an OG. Some older folks here, do you know what an OG is? An original gangster. He's original. Clement is an OTOG. He writes an entire letter about the humility of Christ from the Old Testament. Wow. Could you do that? If someone said, show me the humility of your God, of Jesus, from the Old Testament. Here's a sample. Let me read it from First Clement. Maybe I'll, I'll whet your appetite and you'll want to Google and, and read more. He says this. And he's writing to the church here specifically to address these young bucks that have risen up against the elders and the leaders and pastors of the church. He says, let us therefore be humble-minded, brethren, 
putting aside all arrogance and conceit and foolishness and wrath, and let us do that which is written. For the Holy Spirit says, let not the wise man boast himself in his wisdom, nor the strong man in his strength, nor the rich man in his riches, but he that boasteth, let him boast in the Lord to seek him out and to do judgment in righteousness. Especially remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, which he spoke when he was teaching gentleness and long-suffering. I love how Clement speaks of Jesus teaching gentleness. Jesus teaching long-suffering. Jesus teaching patience. And he quotes the prophet of Jeremiah here. Again, one more Quote from Clement, he says, Therefore it is right and holy, my brethren, for us to obey God rather than to follow those who in pride and unruliness are the instigators of an abominable jealousy. For we shall incur no common harm, but great danger if we rashly yield ourselves to the purposes of men who rush into strife and sedition to estrange us from what is right. Let us be kind to one another according to the compassion and sweetness of our maker. For Christ is of those who are humble-minded, not of those who exalt themselves over his flock. The scepter of the greatness of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came not with the pomp of pride or of arrogance for all his power, but was humble-minded. You see, beloved, what is the example which is given to us? For if the Lord was thus humble-minded, what shall we do who through him have come under the yoke of his grace? Again, Clement sees Jesus as compassionate and sweet. He says, we will incur a great wrath upon ourselves if we rush off with these people who are not humbling themselves but are fighting and resisting the leadership in the local church. And so he comes to them and he paints this picture of Jesus as humble and as compassionate and as sweet and having all the power in the world and yet he is tender. Let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus? He's all powerful. He's in control of everything, and yet he's tender and compassionate and humble and sweet. Why does Clement speak this way? Why does he speak of Jesus this way? Why does he hide the humility of Jesus? Why does he hide the kindness of Jesus? It's because he knows, as Romans 2.4 says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. What is Clement's goal in writing? to get these upshot young bucks who were rebelling against their church leaders. He wants them to repent. And so he paints this picture of Jesus as gentle and long-suffering and compassionate and sweet because Clement knows that the law doesn't change hearts. Being told what to do in a harsh tone never changes hearts. Right, parents? Telling your kids, you need to go clean your room might make them clean their room, but on the inside, what are they doing? Standing, Standing up against you. Yeah. you. You want their heart, right? Okay. The thundering law of God from Sinai doesn't change our hearts, does it? It's seeing the humility of Jesus, and then we want to obey God's law, right? See, being told what to do in a harsh tone never changes hearts. And so Clement reminds the Corinthians, of who Jesus is. He's hoping it will warm the rebellious hearts of these people and then cause them to repent. There's one more writing called Second Clement that people think was written by the same guy, uh, but it was not written by Clement. It was originally thought to be written by him because the language is similar, but it's actually a sermon that's written, and it comes to us from about 150 A.D. And because the language is similar, people gave it the title, well, it sounds a lot like 1 Clement, so let's call it 2 Clement. 
It has a high Christology, a high view of Jesus, a high view of the person and work of Christ, and it exhorts Christians to live a pure life, which is one of the things that the Apostolic Fathers were uh, addressing. Uh, it also addresses hope in the bodily, fleshy, resur- fleshly resurrection of believers, uh, but it's not uh, written by Clement. And so after Clement, the next group of writings that we're going to look at next week is Ignatius of Antioch. He's writing seven letters. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. And he writes these seven letters to seven churches in seven cities. And this happens around 110 A.D. And that's what we're going to start uh, with as we pick up with the Apostolic Fathers next week. But uh, Ignatius is on his way to be martyred. He's on his way to be killed. And on his way uh, from Antioch, uh, I think it's Antioch. He leaves from Antioch to Rome. He's going to write these seven letters to these churches. And highlight and talk about these six things that we talked about. So any other questions or comments that I can answer with I don't know or let me Google that. Don't uh, what about the Didache? We will get to that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. Not next week, maybe the week after that. So so we'll highlight that as well. Uh, what was the guy saying who wrote about the fall of Jerusalem? Josephus. And I just had a quick question. Did, did the early fathers, all did they have access to all of the writings of, of Paul and, and Peter and those? Or? I, th- I think they were being copied and okay. sent out. I would assume a lot of them did. But again, you know, how far, when you're that far removed, how much gets passed around, we don't really know. I would assume they did. Had there, copies. Does there do a lot of their writings reference? They do reference them. Okay. Uh, Clement, at least, though, is heavy on the Old Testament, which they had copies of that. And so uh, they're, they're circulating at this time period. There's, there's copies. Lot, and we have lots and lots of copies of the New Testament uh, from this period. Pieces and fragments and things like that, which is pretty remarkable. And so you think about it. The churches were doing that. You know, Paul tells, uh, uh, does he tell the church in Colossae, read the letter from... Uh, uh, from Ephesus, right? Yeah. And so they're making copies of these things. And they, I don't, I haven't read everything that the Apostolic Fathers have written. But I know Clement does talk about uh, things as well. So By 250, I think uh, they cover about 92% of the New Testament. Yeah. Right. And by then you have, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember his name right now. Um, you have people into... Maybe 170 A.D., Don, you might know. Uh, you have somebody mentioning, I think, the 27 letters of the New Testament. And then by 230, 240, there's, there, you have people who are saying, this is, uh, this is the list of the New Testament that we are recognizing as authoritative. And so yeah, I, think, I think 170 could be wrong. Athanasius. Athanasius, exactly. That's, that's who it is. Athanasius, is, he is one of the first ones to make this list of here are... Uh, the, the 27 uh, books of the New Testament. You know, there were a lot, there were several gospels being written. You know, when we talked about this, um, I can't remember if it was in this class or the discipleship class uh, earlier in the spring. That you know, Paul wrote a letter before First Corinthians, and he wrote a letter in between First and Second Corinthians. So there are at least two letters of Paul that are out there that we don't know. You know, he kind of tells us, this is what I was talking about, has a little harsh with you in that one. Um, if they surfaced today, we wouldn't stick him in our Bibles. We would say, well, this looks like it's the letter that Paul wrote, but wouldn't really know. You know, we don't know. So there were lots of uh, uh, copying going on uh, and people sharing letters and reading letters. There were gospels being written. And then you have the oral tradition as well, where people are passing these stories of Jesus on and eventually uh, the gospel writers are formulating them in an official document to pass so yeah I guess I guess if you 
if you know your New Testament well, when you read the Apostolic Fathers, you're going to know they're talking about this. Because they're not going to say, hey, Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 4, you know, th- those verse numberings don't come later. But you're going to catch what they're saying, like that Clement when I read, that's, that passage is from Jeremiah chapter 9, talking about boasting in the Lord. But if you know your Bible, when you're reading it, you're like, oh, that's, what, that's the passage he's talking about. So, yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay, next week... Uh, Ignatius, and then we'll kind of make our way through these. We might cover them all. I don't know how far we're going to get, but we'll probably get through the rest of them and then start moving on from there. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you uh, that you're so faithful to us, that you've given us your word, that we have a copy of uh, your word that we can read. And so make us a church that reads it and knows it and loves it. Uh, We thank you for the Apostolic Fathers and their commitment to uh, defend the truth, uh, to defend pure doctrine. We thank you for their commitment to see unity happen. And we pray for the unity of churches around the world and for us here at Grace even, Lord. Uh, Make us one as you and Jesus are one. Uh, May that be known. May we be a church that loves one another, and so the outsiders coming in can say there's something different about you people, even though you're all so very different. So we ask that you would help us to do that for your glory and for the good of this local church. In Jesus' name, amen.